The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Really did appreciate Pastor Lester's reminder last week about cherishing the short time that we have on earth. Uh, it was interesting because even as I was listening to the message, I had just read a blog about uh, the idea of cherishing time. Uh, and I think it's particularly challenging in this era of social media where we obsess over documenting and sharing the events of our life. So much so that the truth is often we lose sight of actually experiencing these moments in any kind of genuine and present way when we're going through them. Chris Martin was the one who wrote that blog that I read. He's uh, one of the editors at Moody Publishers. And he recently had a birth of his daughter. Uh, and when she was born, the, he and his wife had decided that they were not going to post any images uh, of their daughter on social media uh, indefinitely. And commenting on that decision, he writes in his blog, have we lost the ability to simply experience the goodness of life because we have become so obsessed with documenting and sharing it? I don't ever want to see my child as a means of producing internet content. And I think one of the best ways to protect against viewing my daughter as a source of Instagram likes is to put off posting any pictures of her for as long as possible. I want to experience my daughter's childhood, and I'm afraid that documenting it for the world to see, a genuinely insane idea fewer than 20 years ago, would take away from me actually experiencing it. Let's just be present. Let's just experience life and not be so concerned with documenting it. Now, I don't think Martin... It's saying that you're a bad parent if you post pictures of your kids on social media. I mean, the truth is, we've done that. We're guilty of that as well as a family. But he does sound an important warning to parents that we can care more about documenting our life in this age of social media than actually living it. And you know, the truth is, it's not just social media, is it? It's all the things that pull and press on us. Um, whenever I look back at pictures of my kids, when they were little, um, now that they're almost all grown up, there's a tinge of, of pain that often accompanies going back to the archive of those photos. And the reason is because when I remember those periods when the kids were really young, and I look at these pictures of myself interacting with them, I realize how many of these events I was not actually fully present at because my mind was distracted with all of the worries of things that I was dealing with or all of the general busyness of all of the things that I was involved with. And I realized that that picture doesn't really capture the truth about where my mind was often in those moments. And what's the crazy thing, the paradoxical thing, is that to make the most of time, rather than panicking and hurrying up, paradoxically, you have to slow down. You have to slow down to really be able to live life more meaningfully for the things that really matter. And I believe that Jesus modeled that wisdom of cherishing time during his earthly life. If you want to see a picture of what it really means to live in the present, be, be present in every moment in a very meaningful way, look no further than the example of Jesus. Look at all of the hidden people that he noticed 
that everyone else disregarded and how personally and specifically he met the needs of those people. Jesus recognized opportunities when they were before him because he was always in that moment aware of what God, his father, was doing. And I think many of us have to rethink our relationship with Jesus. I've already brought this up over the course of the series a couple times now. But I think we tend to think of him as a savior who died for my sins, but we don't really think of him as our teacher, who can teach us what it really means to live a life of significance. And if we're honest, I think many of us have a picture of Jesus that is barely even human. Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy writes, far too often Jesus is regarded as hardly conscious. He is looked on as a mere icon, a wraith-like semblance of a man, fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, perhaps, but little more. For all the vast influence he has exercised on human history, we have to say that Jesus is usually seen as a frankly pathetic individual who lived and still lives on the margins of, quote, Real life. It's a pretty stunning claim that Willard is making here, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. I think some of the more recent movies about Jesus are doing a better job of this, like the Chosen series, uh, portraying his humanity and all of its earthy grit. But the movies I watched as a kid often portrayed Jesus just like this, like a ghost-like figure staring off into the distance and making spiritual pronouncements that were very much like riddles that no one could understand. And he basically was portrayed like a hermit that came out of a cave for the first time and interacting with civilization. And as a result of that, he just seemed so utterly unrelatable and disconnected with anything that I could relate to as reality in my life. And I think the embarrassing truth for Christians is that while we appreciate the fact that Jesus died for us and for our sins, we don't know what to do with most of his teaching. It just confuses us and distresses us. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the best examples of this confusion and this struggle. In the most ex- it's the most extensive and famous of his teachings about what it means to be his disciple. And yet it is one of the most confusing and misunderstood passages in the whole of the Bible. Even without the unhelpful Hollywood portrayals of Jesus, I think we have to admit that a lot of his teaching is frankly difficult. And it's, what I'm saying is it's not so much difficult to understand, intellectually comprehend, as much as the wisdom of Jesus so often goes against our instincts. The very things that we think will secure our happiness and security in life are quite often 180 degrees in the other direction of what Jesus is calling us to do. And it's not easy to reconcile that in our heads. Again, Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says, when Jesus deals with moral evil and goodness, he does not begin by theorizing. He plunges immediately into the guts of human existence, raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust. Uh, Divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. It is the stuff of soap operas and the daily news in real life. He takes this concrete approach because his aim is to enable people to be good, not just talk about it 
He actually knows how to enable people to be good, and he brings his knowledge to bear upon life as it really is, not some intellectualized and sanctified version thereof. He knows that people deeply hunger to be good but cannot find their way. No one wishes to do evil for its own sake. We just find it unfortunately, quote, necessary. We want to be good but are ready to do evil. And we come prepared with lengthy justifications. A little girl in Sunday school expressed the human ambiguity well. When asked what a lie is, she replied, quote, A lie is an abomination to God and a very present help in times of trouble. <laughs> I think we can all identify with this sentiment of feeling trapped into necessary evil. Because we don't know what else to do to get out of so much of the messiness of life other than to sin, other than to do evil. The convenient lie, throwing someone else under the bus to protect ourselves, pressuring someone to do something that we need them to do so desperately, and so we manipulate them. And when we look at the whole of our life and these behaviors that we find ourselves in over and over again, we say, I don't want to do this, but this is just life in a broken world. And I don't see any alternatives to this. And I think what Jesus is trying to say through the Sermon on the Mount is there is another way. There is a fundamentally different posture to life that at first it's going to seem like the worst thing you could possibly do for yourself. It's going to seem like the most destructive, harmful choices you could make for yourself. But Jesus says, you have to trust my wisdom over your own and believe that this, what looks like the path to death, is ultimately going to be a path to your life, the life that you've always wanted. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We've reached one of the most central parts of the sermon, which starts in verse 21 of Matthew 5 and continues all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 48. And through these six topics of murder and adultery, and divorce, and swearing oaths, and taking revenge, and how we treat our enemies, he is offering us a really powerful picture of what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. And each of these topics we're going to cover separately follow this formula that Jesus declares, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I tell you. Jesus, in other words, begins each section by quoting an Old Testament law. But then rather than arguing against the law itself, he points out how we have misinterpreted and mischaracterized that law. And then the third part of his teaching is to reveal what God's true intention was through that law. And then even not just revealing it, but expanding on it and saying, this is what it means to actually obey that teaching, that commandment that God has given us. And in each of these six examples, Jesus uses this framework to show that what God cares about is not just the outward actions, but the heart, the heart underneath these things that we do. Some years back, famed chef Gordon Ramsay hosted a show called Kitchen Nightmares. I used to love this show. I don't know why I liked it so much, but maybe it's because we all like watching train wrecks happen and stuff like that. Um, in each episode, Ramsey would visit a failing restaurant, just on the verge of collapse, right? And he would help to revive it. 
And Ramsey would leave no stone unturned. He would clean out the kitchen storehouses, changing the menu, retraining the waitstaff. Uh, and then finally, the sort of the, the climactic moment is giving every one of these restaurants a radical makeover. New paint job, new furniture, new silverware, new signage. And it would look amazing after he got through with it. And by the end of each episode, the audience is wowed and inspired. It's really like witnessing a resurrection. And uh, you're left with this sense of here was this business that was just about to fail. And it was saved by this hero, Gordon Ramsay. But the harsh reality is that once the cameras turned off and Gordon Ramsay and the production team left the restaurant, almost all of them ended up still failing. Out of 128 restaurants featured over six and a half seasons during the show's running, 110 of them are now out of business, or 86%. And the problem, what was the problem? The problem was the new paint job, the furniture, the improved menus, even all the publicity and hype that was generated by being featured on this show could not change the fact that the owners and managers that almost brought this restaurant to the brink of destruction were still there, running the place. And so sure enough, it was just a matter of time before all of the, just about all of these restaurants nevertheless collapsed. I think this is getting to what Jesus is trying to tell us. If all you worry about is the window dressing of your life, these outward behaviors that are there to be viewed by others, and you think that there is something meaningful happening in that, then he's saying you're wrong. It's not until the heart can change that real, substantive, actual change and growth transformation is happening. Jesus focuses on the heart throughout the Gospels in his teaching. Matthew chapter 23, 25 to 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Luke 6, 43 to 45, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is what Jesus means when he says to his disciples, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees who only cared about their reputation, about how they looked in the eyes of others. Now let me say this. I think there is a danger here in thinking that the God of the Old Testament cared about our actions, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. But then you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus of the New Testament cares about the heart. And so there's this contrast being made of the God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament. And that is not the contrast that Jesus himself is drawing here. 
Because when you really look carefully at the Old Testament, it's clear that even the God of the Old Testament cared about the heart, not just external behavior. Look at just one example of that. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 11 to 12, uh, verses 12 to 16. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience? But now what does that obedience mean to him? To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer." You see, Jesus isn't contrasting himself with his father in the Old Testament. Instead, he is affirming God's emphasis in the Old Testament that the heart is what truly matters. And Jesus begins in our teaching for this morning with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the Old Testament commandment seems simple enough. Don't murder. Now, some of you are used to the language do not kill but i think this murder term is actually appropriate because if you look at it in the original hebrew the kind of killing that is being referred to here is not accidental killing it is not killing in self-defense it is not killing as an act of war the particular term that is being used here for killing is that of an intentional act done with malicious intent in other words murder And in order to understand the deeper heart issue involved with murder, Jesus argues that you have to address the bigger issue of anger. Anger. Anger, I want to start off by saying, is a really hard sin to confront in our lives. And I think uh, a big part of that problem is that it's one of these sins that the truth is most of us don't feel that guilty about. We just don't get ourselves worked up that much about our anger issues. And I think why it is so hard to confront is the fact that anger is almost always in response to a perceived offense against us. So the truth is we feel we are just reacting to an injury that has originally been inflicted on us. And so with anger almost always comes a spirit of justice, a spirit of vindication, a a spirit of justification. Because there is this built-in self-righteousness that accompanies anger. My anger is not the issue here. It's what others have done against me that has stirred my anger that should be the focus not my anger. I'm only responding to what is actually the real sin here. 
And I think in our anger, there's so often this sense of righteous anger that we would like to characterize our anger as. But this is where the Bible gives us warning. And it says, yes, when you read the pages of Scripture, you can see example after example of God's righteous anger. But what the Bible also tells us is it never really invites us to identify with that per se. Because our anger, unlike God's, is rarely righteous or justified. James chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger is very, very rarely redemptive. We may think that our anger is righteous, driven by our sense of justice, but Jesus exposes the darker motive behind our anger, which is the diminishing of the dignity and worth of others. This becomes his focal point. It's the relational breakdown that results because of our anger. If you look a little more closely at verse 22, look at what Jesus says. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That word Raka was a derogatory term that literally means empty head. And the word fool comes from the Greek word moros, from which, as you might guess, we get our English word moron, okay? Uh, basically, it's like calling someone an idiot. And it was very offensive in Jesus' day. Now, what I want to say here is that I think these terms raka and fool begin to take us beyond anger itself and start bringing us to the realm of what we could call contempt. Contempt. And I think we need to make a distinction between anger and contempt. Uh, when you, these epithets like raka and fool, they are basically condemnations of people that in essence declare them to be worthless in your eyes. You are worthless. You are garbage. Let me say it like this. When you're angry at someone, what it usually means is that you care enough about the relationship that that person is enabled to get you emotionally upset, okay? It's kind of the uh, way we could dissect anger. Is when we are angry with someone, what it means is there is still enough of a relationship there that that person can trigger us and get us emotionally upset. And our anger in reply is our attempt to emotionally upset them to basically retaliate, okay? But when we have contempt for a person, it sort of places that person into an entirely different category. To have, to have contempt for someone is to utterly devalue them, to dehumanize them. In essence, it's, it's to say, I don't actually really care how it makes you feel because you're a non-person to me. That's what raka and fool convey here, is not so much anger, but now anger boiled over into contempt. Willard helps us again here. 
And he says, in anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not, or at least so I say. You are not worth consideration one way or the other. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. The intent and the effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, push them away, leave them out and isolated. To belong is a vital need based in the spiritual nature of the human being. Contempt spits on this pathetically deep need. It is withering to the human soul. This is the connection that Jesus is making between murder and anger and contempt. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis where Jesus, where God addresses this issue of murder. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And then look at the commentary that is made on this as a capital offense. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Why is murder such a grievous sin in the Bible? Because someone made in the image of God has been killed. The human life that is so highly valued in God's eyes because they are made in his image has been treated as something useless in that act of murder. And the question is, how does someone get to that point of devaluing another person so much that they intentionally kill them? Well, Jesus points out it begins with the spirit of anger and contempt where you begin to devalue a human being in your heart out of that anger and contempt to the point where you have basically dehumanized them and they no longer in your eyes as you look at them hold any meaningful value. You cannot see them anymore as loved ones made in the image of God. All that you see when you look at them is burning anger or dismissive contempt. That, Jesus says, is the beginnings of the heart of murder in the heart of every person. In contrast to this heart of anger and contempt, Jesus calls his disciples to a spirit of love and reconciliation. Rather than dealing, digging your heels into your anger and stewing in resentment and contempt, Jesus says that my disciple ought to be characterized by an active pursuit of whole and healthy relationships by your own efforts toward genuine reconciliation in every broken relationship that you have experienced in your life. And he illustrates it with two extreme examples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. 
The first illustration is of a person that's there at the temple just about to offer his sacrifice at the altar and he remembers that he has this broken relationship and he remembers that he has wronged someone. And so rather than going through with that act of worship, he literally leaves the animal there and goes to reconcile with leaving the priest there going, what's going on? And we don't do that in our day, so it's hard for us to understand how jarring this must have been to the people hearing. But it'd be literally like me interrupting the sermon mid-sentence and going, oh my goodness, I forgot what I did to somebody, and I just run out those doors. I say, I'll be back in 15 minutes. I have to make a phone call. Or being there with your bride at the wedding altar and realizing that there, there was a friend that you hurt, and you say, can you just hold on a second, honey, and leaving her to deal with that matter. That's the degree to which Jesus is saying, let this be a priority in your life. There are hardly anything else that should take precedence over this as this posture of you taking the initiative to restore a broken relationship and to seek healing and wholeness to others. I find it particularly interesting when you look at this first scenario that it doesn't say if you realize that somebody has wronged you, drop everything and reconcile. But it says if you realize that you have wronged somebody. Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic about it. I think truthfully this can work both ways. But maybe there's a reason why Jesus made it go that way because the truth is I think when you feel wronged and you confront someone, there's a much higher likelihood that that's going to be messy and ugly and it's not going to go well. But when you realize that you are the one that has done wrong, And you take the initiative to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I think I have really wronged you. And you confess and you seek that restoration. You as the offender taking the initiative are in such a better position, I think, for that outcome to lead to real healing and restoration. But we also know how hard that is, isn't it? I think, truthfully, it's the victim that feels much more motivated to try to get reconciliation because you're the one that's been wrong. You are the one that gains from that reconciliation. But when you realize you have wronged somebody else, man, that's a walk of shame, isn't it? To have to go and to confess and say, man, I am really sorry. I think I really hurt you. And I feel it because every time we're at church, you don't make eye contact with me. and We kind of walk the other way. And I don't like this. It breaks my heart that this is the state of our relationship. And I want to make things right. And I want to confess to you. Here's the truth, is that everything in our instinct says, no way, don't do that. The truth is, our instinct tells us we would rather discard a relationship than have to go through the embarrassment and the discomfort of seeking reconciliation. And the truth is, for most of us, There's a whole graveyard of abandoned relationships, of people we've had fallings out with. And the truth is, we just avoid them. That's just the easier way. That's what our sinful hearts tell us to do. But what Christ says is, what I want for you is a life of beauty and wholeness and joy and freedom. And I know what I am asking you to do seems like the most illogical and hurtful thing you could possibly do. But by faith, if you can walk into this wisdom, what Jesus is saying is what I want and what I promise for you is that life of happiness, that life of joy. And I wonder as you think about your own life, are there relationships like that in your life?
where you have hurt someone or someone has hurt you and you took the convenient, easy route of just abandoning that relationship. And I wonder if God's heart for you is to seek reconciliation. To what Jesus is basically saying, if you are my disciple, what it means is that something fundamental has changed in how you view people. Because of my unconditional love poured out on you, now you can see others with that same eye of love. And rather than seeing them as your adversary, as the source of your unhappiness, you can actually wish good for them, even the ones that have hurt you. And you think that stewing in that anger is the right thing to do, but it is like poison in your own life, shriveling your soul. And what Jesus says is, what I long for you is to experience the joy of that selfless embrace of others. I've been trying to practice this in my own life as much as I can. And the truth is, I have victories and I have failures. It's interesting, in the last decade, I've been in two minor car accidents. And both of them were my fault. In both cases, a woman was in front of me trying to make a right turn, and she kind of looked like she was going to go and then hit the brakes, and then I was a little too aggressive and right on her tail, and I bumped into her. And in both cases, we pulled over at the nearest available stop, and in both cases, the woman got out of the car looking fuming angry, and in both cases, what I said was, it is totally my fault, I take full responsibility, and I'm so sorry I did this to you. And then in both cases, as we were awaiting the cops, I just began to talk with them and just express to them how sorry I am again and just be friendly. And rather than seeing that person as an adversary and going, well, I got my own version of this (laughs) that I'm going to tell the police, I just said, it's my fault and I'm going to take the blame. And I just want to be Christ to this person. And in both cases, We had a great conversation. And in one case, the woman drove off before the cops even got there. (laughs) She was like, I'm not even going to bother with this. And in the other case, we filed the police report, and the lady uh, never called my insurance company, never filed a claim. So what I'm saying is be nice and you'll get (laughs) off right now. No, no. That's not what I'm saying, okay? It's not self-serving. I'm just saying we run into a hundred situations every day where someone stands before you like an adversary. And in that moment, God has given you an opportunity to just have a fundamentally different approach to how you treat that person with dignity as a person made in the image of God, who God loves. And sometimes, truthfully, when you do this, it's going to feel like the death of you. You're like, this is crazy. This is suicide. And yet, this is the wisdom of Jesus. That is the path to true happiness, true joy, a life of wholeness and healing in which all of your relationships reflect God's love for you, poured out in your horizontal relationships with others. Marriage is a lot harder, isn't it? one thing to talk to a stranger on a street side but when it's your spouse 
And when you keep a record of wrongs, you start thinking thoughts like, why is it always me? Why can't she ever come and start that reconciliation process? And so the silent treatment can go on for days, right? Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, writes, we must be intentional about reconciliation for it becomes a pervasive lifestyle. This can only begin if we find space and time to ponder, to pray, and to discard where it is that we, let me say, you need to pursue reconciliation or discern where you need to pursue reconciliation. We must ponder those with whom we are out of sorts, those who are closest to us with whom we are not living fully reconciled lives, and those who may not even know that we are harboring bitterness and resentment. Reconciliation is not likely to be something that happens to us as it is something we pursue. We can pray all we want and say, God, you reconcile us. But as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you have a part to play in this to initiate that act of reconciliation with those people that you're estranged from. I think one of the reasons why reconciliation is so hard is because there is a sense in which the wrong done to me cannot be forgotten. It has to be dealt with. That's what stirs this justice and the anger. And I think what Jesus is inviting us to here is to an entirely different view of life in which I say, I am cared for by God. And walking in a world in which his love is always there for me, this is why I can treat people the way that I do, so freely and lovingly and even self-sacrificially. Psalm 56, verse 2 to 4 says, My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Do you know the truth of the psalmist when he says that? What can anyone, even if you're out to get me, even if you hate my guts, even if you're out to destroy my life, if I believe that I am cared for by God, then the ultimate stance of faith is to say, what can mere flesh do to me? Because I am in his care. I am in his love. For those of us who are stuck in that mindset that my pain, the wrong done to me, must not be forgotten, it's even answered in this care of God because in verse 8 of the same psalm, the psalmist says, record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? I don't have to seek vengeance. I don't have to try to fight for my justice because I have a heavenly father who loves me and cares for me. This is not a difficult concept to grasp. <laughs> But it's an incredibly difficult invitation to embrace, isn't it? Can I just invite you to take a minute or two here and think for your own life?
about the broken relationships that are in your rearview mirror. Painful broken relationships. And the truth is, your solution is to just keep driving forward so that the image gets smaller and smaller in that rearview mirror. And I wonder if what Jesus wants of you through the work of his spirit in your heart is to actually turn that car around and to actually go to some of these people and say, I think I've hurt you by what I've done. And I'm really sorry for that. And I know you have not had the courage to come to me, but I feel it every time we're in the same room together. I feel the awkwardness. I, I feel the inability to even look at each other. And I don't want that. I don't want that for either of us. And what I desire is to make us whole again. Let's come to God in prayer like that for a minute. And could you just come before God in prayer? And maybe just for a minute, maybe the truth is you're hearing this whole message and no one comes to mind. And you are blessed if you are like that, okay? Uh, maybe some of you are, are like that. You, you, you don't hold on to wrongs very firmly and you let go of things. But I've done enough, enough pastoral counseling to know that there's many of us that struggle with this. Maybe it's a parent that you feel has really wronged you in your childhood. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a pastor. I don't know. And maybe as you think about not just those who have wronged you, but I want you to think about who have I wronged in my life. Even as I uh, was preparing this message, uh, I felt a really personal burden because uh, I've had some stuff in my remote past unearthed recently of uh, really dark chapters in my life. And what has emerged out of even gaining more information about some of those times was uh, such a deep anger in me, such a, a deep sense of betrayal, a feeling hurt and abused by somebody that actually should have been caring for me. And I have personally had to been dealing in these recent weeks with this really um, difficult sentiments of anger directed at some specific people in my past. And the only freedom that I really see in all of that was you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. And surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute. But think about what Jesus says. In your act of devotion and worship, drop everything and seek reconciliation. Now, I'm not telling you to take that literally and head out the door right now. But I want us to feel the full weight of those words of Jesus. How pious we can be, doing all kinds of religious activities, coming here to worship every Sunday, and yet if we are hearing words of Jesus correctly, if his heart is broken by anything, it's these relationships. And he's saying, oh, great, you come every Sunday to church and you worship me and you sing these songs and you do all this, great. But maybe what Jesus is saying, where my heart is burdened, is these broken relationships in your life. 
And the invitation is to believe that God can give you everything you need through the work of his spirit to seek that reconciliation, to seek wholeness and health in every one of the broken relationships in your life. So just pray that for a couple minutes and then I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table in just a moment here. The life that Jesus calls us to as pronounced on the Sermon on the Mount is not just a difficult life. It is an impossible life. Impossible if attempted in our flesh alone. But by His grace and the work of His Spirit in our life, What is impossible becomes possible. And that's why we come to the table in response to this message. It is to say that I need Christ every day. Every day I need him to sustain me in this life of faith. For my flesh is weak, but God, you are strong. You are great. The night that Christ was betrayed, he gave his disciples this bread and said, this bread represents my body broken for you. He says, this cup represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's come to the table and take first from the bread and then take from the cup. And as we do so, let that be our prayer. Sustain me, God. Enable me and empower me to do what I cannot do in my own flesh. Come receive the Lord's body and his blood. Father, we confess before you that running through many of our veins are the poison of anger and contentment, contempt toward others. Disappointment and resentment and anger always seething beneath the surface. But through your gracious work in our life, through a soul redeemed by your blood, grant to us the grace of knowing a whole new heart, new eyes to see others as you see them. And as much as we understand the grace granted to us, Help us to be agents of that same love and mercy to others around us. Our wisdom, our logic tells us to do something totally different in an act of self-preservation. But help us to truly find our life by losing it, saving our life through this death that you invite us to. We cannot do it by our own power. Only by your strength, your enablement, can we live this impossible life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.